You are listening to the official SASTA podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, and the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. We would both love to see you there. But to the show today, and joining us today, we have Dan Burkhart. Now, Dan is the founder and CEO at Recurly, the startup powering much of the subscription of success we've seen over the last few years, trusted by the likes of Twitch, CBS Interactive, and HubSpot, just to name a few fantastic clients. And they've raised over $20 million in VC funding from leading investors, including Greycroft, Freestyle, Harrison Metal, and more. As for Dan, his background spans 14 years with the likes of eBay and NBC Internet in the marketing, business development, and strategic partnerships realm. I do also want to say a special thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Dan today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Dan Burkhart, founder and CEO at Recurly. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Dan, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Dan. My pleasure, Harry. Thank you for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today, though, with a bit about you and how you came to found Recurly and the aha moment for you with the business. Sure. In the early 2000s, I worked for eBay. I was there for about five years, and I was doing what today would be called growth marketing. We called it internet marketing at the time, but my charter was basically to acquire customers. And I ran a group called Portals and Partners, and that was to spend money with AOL, MSN, and Yahoo in particular to have eBay show up and and be present in search results and throughout the shopping channels, etc. What you might imagine is that the audience and demographics from each of these major channels were fairly consistent. So when we had corporate funds released, the first thing we would do would be to march off to our internal business intelligence team and look at recent history for bidding activity and essentially look at the area under the curve and impute a lifetime value, which will allow us to go back and negotiate the best terms for the next tranche of placements. And so it was always a test, learn, and iterate routine that we would run to make sure that we were always optimizing our customer acquisition costs against the value of the customers that we were acquiring. So it was a good boot camp for what later became significant when I left eBay and I joined a run-of-the-mill startup and my charter was to do the same. And now I better understood the plight of most startups and SaaS startups out there, which was that oftentimes you don't have a very easy ability to connect the dots between marketing programs and channel spend with the cash register and to understand which channels are outperforming the next. And so I got very interested in the idea of solving this problem and and having visibility into revenue events and recurring revenue events at eBay. It was in the form of bidding activity. But in the world of SaaS, of course, it can be recurring or subscription revenue or proceed per month licensing models. And so after meeting with several investors, I was connected with my co-founder who happens to be a deep uh, payments geek and has has, uh, designed a lot of shopping cart backends and certainly understood the wild world of payment processing. And and so the two of us together, my background and expertise being really in you know the business side of acquiring customers and running the acquisition efforts for a large company, but really at that scale, it was like being a portfolio manager. But understanding the importance of that coupled with the challenges of payment processing is really how we arrived at there being a distinct need for a subscription 
storytelling platform that actually elevated above just the mechanics of processing recurring transactions, but actually took advantage of the visibility that we have in our business into recurring revenue events, customer events, and marketing events to elevate the insights through all of the key ratios that any any customer would need. I do have to also, purely out of interest now as an investor in SaaS, you mentioned kind of calculating the LTV to the initial CAC in terms of deciding about the placements and how much you should put in the placements. I'm intrigued. Do you subscribe to the traditional thesis of the three to one on the CAC to LTV ratio? You know, I, I think in general, that's a good goalpost. And I do know that that holds true for most companies. But what we find in our business is that we have a broad variance between the small, medium, large, and extra large customers. And so those ratios change as we segment and cohort our customers. And so it's really critical to sort of to unpack what is going on in your business and not fall prey to just driving your business based on averages. Averages can hide a multitude of sins and you can actually steer your business right into the rocks if you're just looking at a global average. I'm, I'm too intrigued now. How do they change as you go up and down the ACV uh, scale? Well, I think the answer to that is different for every business. So from a VC perspective, that's a great question because some businesses get less efficient as you go up the ACV scale. For us, it actually is quite the opposite, but we have an extremely efficient organic model at the low end where we've got customers signing up in the cloak of darkness every night organically, not asking any questions or asking for demos. They just sign up and they're off and running. And then at the top end of our business, we've got customers that might take six months and have a longer sales cycle and it's more of a traditional enterprise sale and you've got to go meet with various constituents within the enterprise. It might take longer. We invest more in the process. But we in our business do not get ourselves involved with professional services. We really focus on kind of a lightweight, easily embeddable integration so that when we assess fit and we find an enterprise that is a potentially a good customer for us, we will invest up front in chasing those deals. But ultimately, it's, a, it's an extremely favorable CAC to LTV ratio once we sign up those larger customers because they're worth so much more. It, it can be in a, you know, orders of magnitude more valuable as you march up that scale. And once we get those customers, there's the, the ever-increasingly important element of customer success, a, a topic that I know both you and I share a passion for. So with that in mind, I'd love to start with, with discussing managing customer churn and how you decide between regrettable and non-regrettable customer churn. Ah, that's a great question. You put a smile on my face. Uh, <laughs> for, for us, uh, regrettable customer churn is something that I feel that we should have handled differently or if we have somehow failed our customer, which is, you know, it feels like a punch in the chest because that's something that is really truly a core value of our, our company, which is we are the success of our business is based on the success of our customers. So regrettable customer churn is, is when I might find after the fact, after a customer has left us, that they are leaving us for a reason that we should have been able to address or perhaps for a feature that was about to be released within the next 30 days, say. Then I get red in the face because I realize that we should have been ahead of that. We should have been communicating and had more of an active relationship. We should have been proactive about making sure that those customers were, were remaining on our side and knew what was coming and had visibility into the roadmap, for example. That's an example of a regrettable customer churn. Non-regrettable customer churn is, you know, frankly, equally as important in my mind. And in our business, we've had to stick to our knitting, so to speak, in terms of building a multi-tenant SaaS platform. You always have customers that are going to wave the checkbook and ask you to build bespoke 
bespoke software just as a one-off for them, but they're certainly willing to write you a check for it. And I would say, in part, the success of our company has been the result of our willingness to say no to many of these tempting opportunities along the way, because those can present such incredible distractions that if, if you dedicate your roadmap towards chasing those adjacent opportunities, it's it makes it extremely difficult to get to the end state of the next level that allows you to build the company into the next chapter ahead. And so we often find ourselves in those interesting positions where if, if a particular customer might want something that is not going to serve the core customer base for us, we might have to say, sorry, but that's not something that we're going to be able to deliver. We will typically take a yes, no, maybe approach. But it, oftentimes, if, it, if the request lands in that unfortunate no block, we have to just be honest with them and say, this is not something that you can expect us to deliver against. We can certainly work with you to figure out how you might build it. But those customers, if and when they elect to leave in the long term, even though the near-term revenue hit might hurt, uh, in the long term, it's the best decision for the business because it allows us to continue to build a strong, core-focused platform. Absolutely. No, I agree with that element of customization being a distraction. So if we go back to the, to the churn itself, once the churn's been identified, I'm intrigued to hear kind of the, the post-mortem analysis and whether there's a, a blame game that follows uh, and, and how to kind of instill ramifications uh, for the churn, but, but not inherent fear within the team? That's a great question. Certainly, those conversations can become tense, and I think tension is good. We have one of our core values is to, to debate passionately and compromise accordingly, and that might sound soft, but uh, I think that companies can get mired in debate, and debate can become unhealthy if you let it run on too long. So when a customer leaves us, we, of course, always want to understand the reasons for their departure. We also marry that up with the win-loss data that we have from the sales channel. So when the stars align and we start to see that customers are leaving us for the same reasons that we are losing deals on the sales side, that's when we really sit up and focus our attention on increasing the priority of that initiative. And that's healthy. I would say that when it becomes a little bit more tense is when you have companies leaving you that might be in the higher ACV brackets that don't necessarily reflect the broader average of your customer base. And that's when it can become a little testy internally and those debates get heated about, okay, well, we need to focus on the fast moving part of the stream where the revenue is coming from versus the broad averages of our company. And that's a healthy debate. That's a good one to have. I'd say the third aspect of this is oftentimes companies are presented with the need to innovate in ways that perhaps customers are not asking them for or, or, or for certain feature requests that customers may not even know that they would value. And that's kind of the blind spot for most SaaS companies is if you're a true expert, if you actually value good user experience design and, and might anticipate a particular way in which a customer might want to consume a feature or a piece of functionality, there might be a way that you can deliver it that they are not envisioning. And so we always try to keep that last spark alive within our company and have hackathon days and we'll even have sprint demos where we might prototype ideas and circulate them amongst the company just to gauge level of interest and get some and to spur some debate and some discussion in the company about what might be possible. So I think all three of those things are, are very important. I'm, I'm really interested. You said about kind of product features there and bringing them to market because you said one element of regrettable churn was when someone requested a product feature that was coming out soon within the next 
next kind of 30 or 60 days and not communicating that well enough in advance. I, I'm intrigued on that element, how you look to unify the marketing and the sales teams then, given that potential regrettable churn and how you look to mitigate it. We actually have joint meetings that occur several times a month where we'll get together. And I think that, you know, following the data, tracking the data is, is of course, one element of this. And, I, and every company goes through this where, you know, you can suffer from garbage in, garbage out. If you have incomplete data, then you can make poor decisions based on that. So the first order of business is making sure that we've got effectively a hall monitor internally to make sure that you've got good data hygiene and we're collecting all of the appropriate data. We happen to use Salesforce for that. And secondly, there has to be a discussion. There's always context. So so the sort of question behind the question or what was the context in which this request was made is why we get together and discuss this in person cross-functionally. And so it's customer success, customer support, our product team, which runs the master feature prioritization list and has a highly quantitative way of measuring not only each feature request, but from whom did these requests come from? What is the ACV? Which tranche of customers? Are they a VIP customer, et cetera? So we gather as much information, and the spreadsheet's massive, in order to take an approach that is both quantitative and very objective, but then it allows for us to make adjustments and impart a little bit of judgment here and to have a little bit of a qualitative override if needed. But it has to start with the data. It has to be an objective framework that is used because there are always going to be so many corner cases that if you can't really put it into a spreadsheet that helps organize your thinking, the conversations end up becoming a fool's errand. Talking about the framework and applying it back to the customer success element. I think we, I, I essentially jumped a step though in terms of our assessment of regrettable and non-regrettable because in a lot of cases it's a case of building out the customer success team itself. So I'm intrigued, when do you feel that one really needs a customer success team? At what inflection point is that moment? You know, in the early days, we call it the, the early wild and woolly days where there's more chaos, less structure, less hierarchy, the customer success function clearly must fall on the shoulders of the founders and and, you know, you're wearing many hats, you're the chief salesperson and clearly involved in every single customer relationship, making sure that you can lever that forward. We probably, I'd say in the earliest days, our number four hire was a customer support person. So we, I think, had the good fortune of hiring and investing in customer support early on, even before we had a, a fully blown product available. But we had paying customers at the time, so we knew we needed a group to be built out to answer tickets, etc. And I'd say that in the early days, it was customer support plus founding team, and it was all hands on deck. It was pretty much everyone involved attending to the needs and requests of customers, and sometimes we would pull in engineers and pull them away from their terminals in order to answer questions. As we grew, of course, that doesn't scale, and so there was a natural, I'd say an inherent, one of the many inflection points, but an inflection point early on, probably approaching three to five million in ARR, where we knew that the customer support team that had scaled up to, I believe, about five people at the time was was not going to be sufficient to manage the VIP relationships. There's a different level of finesse and relationship and investment in relationship that has to happen. And that's when we felt that we needed dedicated customer success managers that were going to start to attend to the needs of these top VIP customers. And for us, this happened even before we had really blown out our sales team. So we were signing up fairly large customers before we even had a fully functioning inside sales team. We had a couple of reps, but it was certainly not what it is today. Can I ask and what, so what, what, we what ACV yeah. is the VIP customer differentiation? I would say for us, as soon as you start to get into the hundreds of thousands in ACV, then naturally you're going to have a team. Typically, you're selling into a larger enterprise that has 
a team of people. And when you have a team of people that you're attending to within a single customer, that is when those particular customers can run you ragged. If you're relying on a ticketing system or if you're receiving questions from six, eight, ten people within an organization and you're trying to run that through a natural ticketing system, you have to have a customer success manager that's dedicated to that account to field those questions and oftentimes get them to rationalize, hey, I'm hearing this question from this person over in, in one department, another question coming from another department. Are you guys talking to each other and who's my single point of contact? That's a really critical function just to rationalize the inbound requests. So for us, it became critical for us to build out a team that could attend to the needs of our larger customers. And then we've stratified that team in terms of small, medium, large, extra large type customers so that they can attend to the demands with the appropriate level of touch. Can I ask, are there levels of seniority within that team? And is there kind of differing budgets and and how you account for the costs of those teams? There is. This is going to be a little, so we have a, a blended approach. So in our business, we sign up small early stage customers all the way up to Fortune 500 enterprises. And so in between, you know, broadly serving mid enterprises, but I would say that the, to attend to the likes of Amazon or CBS or big media companies, we have dedicated individuals that might only have one or two accounts that they attend to. And it's a full-time job and they are on the phone with various people and scheduling conference calls. And it happens all day just because the surface area for these large companies is massive. To answer your question about budget, our team is stratified based on the coverage model, meaning for the early stage or the high potential customers where we might say, okay, they deserve a named account manager or customer success manager, but you're not going to spend every day with them on the phone. You just have to make sure you're checking in with these high potential customers once a month as they are scaling up and they might have questions. And as those questions come in to our support organization, that named customer success manager is automatically CC'd on the ticket so that they know to zoom in and provide the context for this particular customer so that it's not just some rotated support agent answering a question without context for all the prior conversations. Even as much as that might be logged in Salesforce, phone conversations always happen and context is always lost. Mm-hmm. And so we we tend to straddle the two organizations and make sure that the appropriate customer success manager is always brought in. And they might review a ticket that a support agent has crafted to make sure that the answer is appropriate before it goes back out in order to create scalability. We've got a curve that looks at various levels, and these might be junior customer success agents that might handle 40 or 50 of our customers. And then as you scale up, you'll have a senior customer success manager that would perhaps handle 20 VIPs. And then at the top of our curve, we have our senior or executive customer success managers that are attending to one or two accounts, but they're running full speed all day. I'd love to dive into what we call the 60-second SASTA, though. So a quick fire around a statement, 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Sure. So intellectual honesty, how do you instill it and what's the process? Oh, we instill it on day one when we go through orientation. We talk about intellectual honesty being one of the corner posts of our value system. And it starts with hello in terms of the sales process and marketing. So we always want to undersell and over-deliver in order to deliver a great experience to our customers. And so it it starts with hello and it it cascades through the entire life cycle of the customer. Efficiency-seeking value-driven creation. Uh, What do you mean by this? (laughs) 
<laughs> I like to hire people that have worked for both startups and perhaps have big company experience. And the reason for that is if we just hire people from big companies because we love the experience that they bring, they often can fall prey to the to the trap of busying themselves. And you might go for days or weeks on a root cause analysis to something when in a startup you don't have time to invest and go deeply on busying yourself. Oftentimes you have to suspend the, your interest in going deep on something and not let perfect get in the way of good enough. And you've always got to rationalize what you're putting effort into. So for us, I'd say that you know we have a, a deep test, learn, iterate culture. We also still fashion ourselves as a lean startup where we deliver MVPs, we get feedback, and then we build upon that. And so I, I'd say you know our last value in our company is play to win and, and get shit done. And it, it's you know if you dally around in a startup, you're going to die. You know if you regress to the mean, you're going to die. So you got to move quickly. What's your fave SaaS material? It could be a book, it could be a blog, it could be an article in particular. What's your favorite? I think every SaaS operator has to read Predictable Revenue, of course. Um, in our position, we're actually not the first in our category. And so I really like a book called Eating Big Fish by Adam Morgan. And it's all about creating a challenger brand and a mentality within a company to instill deep cultural values that support this fire in the belly that allows you to take on larger companies and incumbents. And that has been a big cornerstone for how we've built a company being really the, the third generation of subscription billing vendors, but certainly capturing market share and doing a great job as, as a, a younger upstart. Adding to my reading list now, but, but what element of the journey have you found most challenging? Oh, I'd say there are key milestone moments and inflection points. And so in the early days, you know, we hired full stack engineers. You have to, you've got to have athletes that can take on any job. I remember when we brought in our first product manager, the, she was met with crossed arms from the engineers. They didn't want to take orders from a product manager. They wanted to uh, pursue the GitHub model where engineers are product managers. And so we've had to evolve and, and strike a balance between being an engineering-focused culture and solving for business value and business needs in the market. And so that balance between engineering and product management and business value has been a delicate one for us. And we've encountered various milestones along the way where we've had to bring in new layers and hierarchy, and it's always met with a little resistance. And then later, we realize it allowed us to expand to the next level. So it, it has happened about three different times along the way. I think as we crossed 100 employees, it was another distinct milestone. Absolutely. No, that's a, it's a challenging one to transition. Uh, but out of the quickfire, and a topic that, again, I know you're very passionate about, and it's a passion for good user experience and design. So with that in mind, I do want to also ask, because you're also very passionate about data, and the two can often be viewed as slightly in parallel in terms of great simplicity of UX and then data. So how do you think the two can be integrated? And then what do you think good UX design looks like? Mm, okay, good question. So again, a little bit of context here. I'm, I do fashion myself as a, as a design snob, so I do pay attention to the details and the grid and alignment and proportion and all of those good things. Not everyone does. And I think that that's one thing is that oftentimes designers have a, a tendency to presume that everyone else in the world sees things the way they do. They often don't. The way I rationalize this is that if you think about going to eat in a restaurant and the waiter comes and, and takes your dirty silverware and, and uh, removes it from the plate, leaves you with dirty silverware and removes the plate from the table, you're always left with that feeling of, huh, okay, that was kind of a horrible experience. I feel like I'm eating in a diner. Whereas at a, at a nicer restaurant, of course, the wait staff would know how to clean the table and prepare for the next course. And so those are sort of subconscious cues that either you pay attention to that and you notice that detail in that moment or not. And actually, even for those 
those that are not tuned into design, I do believe that those subconscious cues are extremely valuable. And they can be valuable from a differentiating perspective, but often it just leaves you with either that feeling that you just experienced something that was premium and polished versus something that was kind of amateur hour and bush league. And so I do come from a world where I do focus on data, but I think that if you over-quantify the value of design and you try and just look for incremental revenue from each design move, you're going to lose it. And the reason for that is I think we went through perhaps four or six different creative directors. When I was at eBay and they would come in with a big promise to reinvent the brand, and it was such a data-driven culture that we would oftentimes overanalyze. And you know, a lot of the design decisions were made by committee and through just sole uh, testing of A-B testing and, and looking for incrementality. And what that allowed us to do is, is, you know, we frankly lost our way at eBay. So what I've learned to do is to not over-quantify the design iteration. You have to hire talented designers that have a, a good gut feel and instinct, but you also have to back it up with incrementality and looking at A-B testing. So for something as critical as an onboarding flow, a sign-up flow, you can make design changes, and some of them might just be merely aesthetic, but you ultimately, at the end of the day, have to back it up with data. I think that for some of the more finessed areas, I think design has to do with consistency of experience. And so you might actually have documentation pages or a blog post or a newsletter that goes out. And those are not going to be things that you necessarily are A-B testing in every step of the way. But there has to be a modicum of consistency across the way you present your brand at every touch point. And it's that consistency and polish in every single juncture that does add up to make an experience and a perception where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If you have a wonderful sign-up flow and the rest of your experience is shit, it's going to fall down. It will not hold up. And so there's balance here. And I and I do have to balance both sides of the brain. And that's why I like to hire people from different backgrounds that can help me balance it out. Dan, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. As I said earlier, Jason told me it'd be a fantastic episode. So I'm so grateful to you for giving up the time and such exciting times ahead for Rockerly. Thank you so much, Harry. It was my pleasure. Again, a huge thanks to Dan and fantastic to hear inside the trajectory of Recurly. And a big thank you again to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Dan's Day, without which the episode would not have been possible. And if you enjoyed the show today with Dan, you can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Burkhart. You can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at Jason LK. And you can follow me on Snapchat at H Stebbings. We'd all love to see you there. As always, we so appreciate all your support. And I cannot wait to bring you Monday's interview with me and Brad Feld. It's a special one.